Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. It's Politics with Amy Walter. I'm Matt Katz. In for Amy this week. Good to have you with us. This week, like many weeks, it seems, has been fraught. Primary voters in Georgia were greeted by long lines and broken machines. And George Floyd was laid to rest in Houston following weeks in which thousands of Americans took to the streets to decry police brutality in his name. Meanwhile, Congress is reckoning with how to respond to the protests and to the calls for police accountability, in addition to tackling systemic racism in policing. Democrats introduced the Justice in Policing Act this week, but many progressives worry it doesn't address the issue of systemic racism in policing. Here to help us look back at the week and make sense of it all is Laura Barone Lopez, national political reporter at Politico, and Nick Fandos, congressional correspondent for The New York Times. Thank you, Laura and Nick. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nick, I'll start with you. Can you give me a summary of the Justice and Policing Act that's now proposed in Congress? What would this bill do? What wouldn't it not do? So Democrats in the House and Senate introduced this bill on Monday as kind of their um, opening offer for a debate that Congress is, is likely to have over policing and criminal justice in the next few weeks. Um, it, and this bill has a lot of different uh, provisions in it on the kind of folks in this field consider the front end and back end of policing. So um, it makes it easier to um, prosecute cops, basically, that violate individual civil rights. Um, it bans things like chokeholds um, and no-knock warrants in drug cases. Um, there's a lot of ways in which it tries to incentivize local departments and states to um, improve anti-bias training, use of force training. Um, it sets up a, a what would be a kind of a first national registry to track the use of force by police officers and make it easier to track officers who do use force improperly from department to department. You know, it's 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 an expansive bill. Um, some on the left feel it, it doesn't go far enough, um, but it's uh, a bigger overhaul in policing than Congress has tried to undertake in well anybody's memory. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about the how some on the left feel it might be just the more reforms and kind of dismissive of it. I've been talking to activists who have taken to the streets and then experts who have thought deeply about this idea of moving toward police abolition, uh, defunding, and even eventually ending police departments as we know them. And it seems that this bill is not that at all. Nick, can you just follow up on this? Is is there a gulf here between the, the vocal grassroots and some of what we've heard on the streets and then what elected Democrats are offering them in this bill? Yeah, I, th I think there is certainly a gulf. Um, what elected Democrats would tell you is, for, for one thing, you know, funding of departments largely takes place at the state and local level. It's not, um, Congress doesn't have a particular role to play um, in, say, defunding or pulling apart the police department in Minneapolis. Um, but it definitely, you know, it's a, it's a bill that takes the view, um, and, and many Democrats in Congress share this, that you know, there are positive changes, there are reforms that can be made to improve the system um, short of, of completely dismantling it. And I think that reflects, you know, to some extent, the degree to which Congress wants to do something and, and this is what it has the power 
to do. Mm -hmm. And where are Republicans on this? So Republicans um, in the Senate who have the majority there um, were a little bit behind the curve here and are now racing to put together their own proposal. Um, that's being led by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Um, he's the one black Republican in the Senate. There are two black Democrats. Um, he's expected to introduce a bill next week that will be um, a kind of narrower set of changes um, where the federal government will be mandating less onto state and, and local um, law enforcement agencies, but will try to collect better data and incentivize them to make changes on their own. Um, my guess is Democrats are not going to be um, enamored of that bill. They're going to say it's a half measure. Um, but, you know, the fact that it's coming along at all shows that Republicans, um, in a way that, you know, really they have not in the past, are trying to put forward some proposals on this issue. Mm -hmm. Laura, what role do you think this, this debate over policing and then the protests and sustained uprisings are, are going to play in the general election? Well, we've already seen a dramatic shift in uh, where voters' views of this entire uh moment and the Black Lives Matter movement. So uh, it's really been a dramatic shift and in a matter of two weeks, and that's nearly as much as support for Black Lives Matter moved in the last two years. Uh, wow. So you're seeing the result uh, of these protests uh, in real time and the impact on the uh, American psyche and on the American electorate. You've also seen that, you know, another poll found that police treatment of African Americans has changed dramatically in how people view that, where 69%, you know, said that the killing of Floyd, George Floyd, uh, represented a broader problem with law enforcement. So because of these dramatic shifts uh, among the American people, we're seeing Congress react to that, this mass upheaval across the country. We're seeing Democrats know that they really want to take action before the election, and also Republicans in just the last week, have shifted. Uh, Karl Rove told Politico that you're watching a shift within the Republican Party in real time. Now, whether or not that results in actual legislation or change taken by the president is another question. But voters increasingly are saying that race relations and racism is a very big problem in this country and that it's something that they're thinking about as they're heading to the polls in November. Will it make more of them head to the polls? That's probably the question that Joe Biden wants answered. Right. So in terms of black voters, the big question is with young black voters. Um, there's no doubt Biden will likely win some 90 percent of black voters because consistently across the past elections, they vote Democratic. Uh, where there is softness is with young black voters, particularly black men. And it isn't really a question of is Trump going to be able to pull over, you know, a, a huge amount of them because that's not uh, likely. It's about whether or not they sit out the election. And so we see that with these protests, they're very much about taking action external to the system, which is the system has never worked for me, uh, has never worked for my family. And so... I'm going to go outside of it to exert pressure. And what that ultimately can come down to with the activists that I've spoken to, as well as Democratic pollsters, is that there is a risk that given all of the things that have been inflicted on Black Americans in the past three months or more, 
also accounting for the fact that this is something that has existed for generations. But you have coronavirus that's disproportionately impacted African-American communities. You have the economic downturn that's also disproportionately impacted them. And then you have um, this unrest around police brutality that has impacted them for generations. So all of that could either, yes, lead towards more going to the polls or also lead towards uh, some disillusionment with a system uh, that they think doesn't work for them. Meanwhile, Nick, Congress is having a hard time passing a law outlawing lynching, of all things, right now here in the year 2020. What What's happening there? Yeah, not the debate that you would expect Congress to be hung up right. on um, in, in 2020. So for, um, I mean, it's worth briefly meditating on the history here. You know, for more than a century, lawmakers in the House and Senate tried to introduce anti-lynching legislation. It passed the House early in the 20th century, and um, racist Southern senators were able to exploit Senate rules to block it for years and years and years. Now, a measure would mostly be symbolic because of federal hate crime laws that are already on the books, but lawmakers feel that it's important to kind of right this historic wrong, and so they put together an effort over the last few years it passed the House earlier this year, and 99 senators agree uh, this ought to become law. One of them, Rand Paul, a uh, Republican from Kentucky, is opposed. Um, and he has particular opposition to the way the bill is written. He thinks it will um, basically set too low a standard to charge um, someone or a group of people with lynching for something that historically wouldn't have been considered lynching. Hmm. Um, and so he has held up passage of that bill in the Senate, um, trying to negotiate some sort of um, drafting change with with the authors. And they're basically at an impasse. It led um, a week ago to a pretty remarkable debate on the Senate floor about the history of race and lynching and policing in America. And frankly, you know, they're at a stalemate right now. We don't know where that's going. But it just, it, you know, it's, a, it's an episode that underscores um, how difficult legal changes in this area um, are and how slow they can be in coming. And Laura, it also says something about Congress's ability to reconcile the country's history of racial violence, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, we've seen time and time again where um, Congress is very reactive as opposed to um, taking action on the front end. And so I think that uh, whether it's the lynching bill or also these uh, police reforms that we're seeing Congress debate right now, there is very much legitimate question about when, if ever, they will be able to pass a legislative bill like this. Laura, I want to stick with you for a moment. Georgia held their primary this week, and we saw people waiting in long lines, malfunctioning machines, low number of poll workers because of uh, coronavirus. There were reports of people waiting for hours and hours. The, the headline of your article about it, about it called it a hot flaming mess. What happened? Right. So it was an election failure across the board in Georgia. And also Nevada had very similar problems. But in Georgia, um, what it appears to have come down to was uh, new voting machines that were introduced into system that failed in a variety of forms uh, at at counties across the state. And that resulted in voters waiting in line for, you know, three to five to six hours some of the last voters didn't leave polling places until 1 a.m. in the morning. And um, and again, when this happens, when there is such barriers to voting, 
we have studies that show that it disproportionately impacts voters of color, black voters, brown voters, and all the primaries that we've seen so far to date since coronavirus uh, resulted in lockdowns in a number of states is is long lines, is this very difficult this very um, hard process of voting, where also the absentee ballot process, which a lot of states tried to improve in order to prepare because of the pandemic, has also not gone off flawlessly at all. There have been issues with absentee ballots reaching voters in time. Um, So it doesn't bode well for November. And um, there is a lot of steps that states have to take uh, between now and then in order to make sure um, that that we don't see again these uh, insanely long lines. Laura Barone Lopez, national political reporter at Politico, and Nick Fandos, congressional correspondent for the New York Times. Both of you, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. In the aftermath of when black Americans are killed by police, we see outrage on social media, calls for an investigation, and sometimes protests. But nothing, nothing compares to what we've seen over the last three weeks. Sustained protests across the U.S. and a national reckoning about who's perceived as dangerous by law enforcement. This week, Philonis Floyd, George Floyd's younger brother, went to Washington to testify on Capitol Hill. The man who took his life, who suffocated him for eight minutes and 46 seconds, he still called him sir as he begged for his life. I can't tell you the kind of pain you feel when you watch something like that. I'm here to ask you to make it stop. It's been about three weeks since his brother was killed by police officers in Minneapolis. As communities have started to assess what's wrong with policing, so have our lawmakers. This week, the Justice in Policing Act was introduced on Capitol Hill. If passed, the bill would prohibit chokeholds, ban some no-knock warrants, track police misconduct at the national level, and make it easier to pursue legal civil action against police misconduct. Congressman James Clyburn from South Carolina has spent his entire life fighting for civil rights. I spoke with him about the new bill, the calls to defund the police, and how far we've come since his days in the civil rights movement. Well, we've come a very long way, not near as far as we need to go. We all know that policing was put in place for the express purpose of keeping check on slaves. That's what this is all about. And policing was used in the Jim Jim Crow era for the express purpose of suppressing black folks. And policing was used in the 60s to put down peaceful demonstrations. The first time John Lewis was ever physically attacked was in Rock Hill, South Carolina. I was there in Sumter, my hometown when J.T. McCain brought John Lewis to Sumter from Rock Hill to nurse his wounds and send him back up to Washington. A lot of people don't realize that John Lewis didn't make the full Freedom Ride trip because he had been injured in Rock Hill. And that was a policeman who came to Washington before he died to sit down and apologize to John Lewis. So we know 
what it's all about. So, no, we have not gone as far as we need to go because the, the, the country still will not admit that that's the kind of system we put in place. If policing has been the source of so much violence and, and bloodshed for, for now centuries, and it, and it stems from slave patrols, can it be reformed? Can it be fixed? Or is it just systemically structured to oppress uh, black and, and poor people? It must be restructured, our social order. There is no secret as to why more black and brown people are dying because of COVID-19 than white people, because our health care delivery system is not structured on their behalf. There's no secret. The educational system that we have in this country has been structured. We fund white majority white school districts at a higher level than we fund majority black school districts. We know that. The reason our uh, educational system is financed the way it is, uh, is to keep there from being equal application of funding to black and white schools. We know that. So it has to be restructured. Our judicial system, our educational system, our health care system, all have been structured that way. So I'm going to say it again. Restructure, restructure, restructure. Restructured, but not defunded. That's what I said. I know what the word defund means. And in the time you are using words that you got to go out and explain what it means, that means you're leaving it up to the next person to hear the word to explain it in the way they want to. If you got to explain the term, you're losing the argument. Let's talk about this first step in terms of restructuring the the Justice and Policing Act of 2020 introduced this week in the House and Senate. The bill seeks to ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants in in drug cases. It would create a national registry for police misconduct and make it easier to pursue legal civil action against police misconduct. Does that go part of the way toward uh, this restructuring that you're talking about, this bill? Yes, it does. It goes a significant part of the way. And not all the way, but it's a great start. And I would hope uh, that what the Senate is doing, they're about to put up their version. Uh, they ought to go the rest of the way. And they ought to start by passing the Emmett Till anti-lynching law. The Senate is stopping that law. We pass it in the House. What are the chances in the Senate? And then, and then what about from the president? Do you have any idea if he's committed to making some sort of uh, uh, efforts in this regard? Unless there's going to be some significant public pressure, this president is dedicated not to maintaining the status quo. He is dedicated to turning the clock back. Retrogression on the social uh, side of things is what this president is all about. You know, you have protesters out there who see, obviously, the president as as an obstructionist when it comes to this issue, but they also think that the Democrats aren't going far enough. They, they say they're tired of hearing politicians talk about police reforms, and they say there's just a systemic issue here with policing. You, you spoke of it yourself, how police are descended from slave patrols and more reforms, uh, more implicit bias training and body cameras won't stop the, the bloodshed. Um, wh- what do you say to that? Let's try passing the law and see. Would that argument prevail? As, as when we look back 
on the results of the Civil Rights Act of 1964? How about the Voting Rights Act of 1965? How about the Elementary Secondary Education Act of 1965? Uh, the Higher Education Act of 1965? You go down through the so-called Great Society programs that my Republican friends keep lying about, saying that they failed, they did not fail. Medicare and Medicaid are not fails. They're still with us. The Voting Rights Act did not fail. The Civil Rights Act did not fail. Elementary Secondary Education Act did not fail. The Higher Education Act did not fail. These acts did not fail. Congressman Clyburn, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When protesters took to the streets a few weeks ago, we heard chants like, Stop Killing Us, Black Lives Matter, Hold Police Accountable. Increasingly, the progressive policy prescription is to defund the police. While many high-ranking members of the Democratic Party don't support calls to defund the police entirely, the notion of some form of defunding is picking up traction. As the calls to defund and even abolish the police grow louder, I wanted to understand what a world without police might look like. So I sat down with Andrea Ritchie, a researcher at the Interrupting Criminalization Initiative, as well as Alex Vitali, professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. There's currently programs on the ground all across the country, real campaigns to intervene in local budget processes to shift specific resources from policing and jails and youth lockups over to community-identified social needs. But there is also a bigger vision out there. People want to live in a world where safety isn't provided by people with guns. And what about the idea of abolishing the police? What's the distinction there between abolition and defunding? I think abolition is a kind of overarching theoretical framework for how we approach the problems of policing in society. That framework says that policing are inherently a source of harm and they have historically reproduced race and class inequalities. And therefore, anytime we turn a problem over to the police to manage, you know, we're validating and enacting that potential for, for violence and discrimination. So that it demands of us to always search for solutions to our problems that, that don't rely on that problematic institution. What happens if and when there are emergencies like a sexual assault or a robbery or a homicide if we are working toward a place where police departments, as we know them, cease to exist? The system we have in place now doesn't prevent a lot of those harms. That's about police taking reports after harms have already been committed. And in many communities, there's so little trust between the public and the police that people don't even call the police in situations of violence and, and when they're in real danger. And we have to acknowledge that because what people are demanding is not that we make people less safe, it's that we make people more safe. 
that we have specific targeted programmatic interventions that are, are going to be more successful at preventing harms and repairing those harms than just relying on armed police who come after the violence has already happened. Okay, let's get into some of the practicality behind some of this stuff in, in today's political environment. Andrea, a uh, recent polling from the Washington Post found that 69% of Americans found the killing of George Floyd represents a broader problem within law enforcement. That's up from 2014 when just 43% of people agreed with that, with that premise. What does that jump indicate to you about the appetite for more radical approaches to police accountability today? People are saying this is the time for solutions of the future, which require us to really build a world where an allegation of a forged $20 bill cannot lead you to be suffocated to death on camera. And people want to build a world where the war on drugs can't result in a black woman being killed in her home in her sleep. And that is what's motivating people's demands around defund the police right now. And people are particularly motivated in that respect because we are in the middle both of a pandemic that has revealed how structural inequalities affecting black and other communities, including native communities, are literally deadly on now a mass scale, and that police violence also continues to be deadly on a mass scale, and that we're facing an economic crisis in which programs we need to survive the pandemic are being slashed, while the budgets of the people who are perpetrating this deadly violence against black communities in the middle of a pandemic that's killing so many of us are not being touched. Andrea, you're someone who's worked as a, a police misconduct attorney. Can you tell us why activists have moved away from calling for police reform? What have people seen in their in their lived experiences that have made them believe that the ideas of police reform, as we've traditionally known them, are, just don't work and they're now calling for defunding the police? I mean, I think there have been decades and frankly centuries of commissions, inquiries, recommendations, impact litigation, lawsuits, consent decrees, policy reform. I think most recently uh, folks following Ferguson had, you know, were calling for individual prosecutions and the pattern and practice investigation, which revealed the structural nature of police violence in Ferguson and, and in, by extension across the country. People saw recommendations that came from the federal government. They saw cities like Minneapolis, like Louisville, like other cities across the country adopt those policies and reforms on paper. And then they saw a man being choked to death in, while the officer was impassively staring at a young black woman who was filming him for nine minutes. And they saw hmm. a black woman sleeping in her bed gunned down in her own home. And they saw someone who was experiencing homophobic and transphobic violence and needed help gunned down near their home. And they said, this is clearly not working. And I think as someone who sued the police in New York City for 15 years and around the country and engaged in impact litigation, I came to the same conclusion. Nothing I was doing, and I'd certainly engaged in police reform efforts at the local, state, and federal level and supported groups around the country in trying to change policy and trying to shift funding uh, on the federal government to get some accountability through that. And I saw that it changed nothing about the problems and experiences that people were bringing to me as clients or that communities were organizing around. And so I think many folks say, that's it, we're done. We're done with that strategy. At this point, we need to really reimagine how we achieve public safety and we need to invest in the things that will actually do that. And those things are also the things that will keep us safer during a pandemic and will help us survive the greatest economic crisis of our generation, housing, 
healthcare, employment, mental health care, responses to mental health that don't wait for a moment of crisis and then send in an armed police officer who's more likely to kill disabled people um, in that moment uh, than the rest of the general population. Alex, I'm, I'm curious to talk more about how to sell this politically. You have the, the president who can take the words, the phrase, defund the police, and then use them to attack Democrats and progressives as being soft on crime. Democrats th- themselves are, are wary of using that phrase. Many of them are. Law and order has always been such a potent political argument in this country, and it's, it's helped scores of politicians win elections. How can you counter that? Well, first of all, you know, policing is primarily a local issue. And I agree, we're not going to solve this problem right now in Washington. Since the uh, killing of Floyd in Minneapolis, we've seen a huge explosion in the number of people supporting these movements. Uh, Public budget hearings lasting through the night and into the next morning in, in places like Nashville, Tennessee, and Northampton, Massachusetts. And we've seen local officials beginning to respond, not adequately, but at least beginning to show what this might look like. Mayors in Los Angeles and Minneapolis and New York and San Francisco agreeing that police budgets are too large and that we need to shift some of those resources to community-identified needs. I will say, though, on the federal level, there seems to be a disconnect between that kind of thinking and what activists and protesters are arguing on the street and then what the leadership within the Democratic Party is saying. I spoke with Congressman Clyburn uh, on the show about the Justice and Policing Act, and he said he was just against the idea of defunding the police. Uh, and he, he said it was just a slogan that would have to be explained to voters. He likes the, the idea of, quote, restructuring the pol- police departments instead. Alex, what would you say to Congressman Clyburn? Uh, isn't he and, and those... National Democrats, don't they represent a significant hurdle for this movement? You know, I'm not wedded to any particular slogan or or two-word description of this movement. You know, defund the police kind of emerged organically as something that could go on a cardboard sign or a hashtag. But this movement is clear about what it wants. It wants the redirection of resources from criminalization to community empowerment, health and safety. And so we don't need Congress to pass a defund the police bill. We need Congress to quit subsidizing local police, to dial back the drug war, to get rid of SESTA-FOSTA that criminalizes sex work, and to put new resources into bringing counselors and social workers back into our schools, to creating high-quality medically-based drug treatment programs to help combat the opioid crisis. These are things Congress could do right away without having to get caught up in the language of defund the police. Andrea, are you concerned about the Democratic establishment at large that doesn't seem moved by this idea of defunding the police? Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee, says he will not support calls to defund the police. I'm wondering, you know, the same question I asked Alex, where does this leave this movement and then the police abolition movement at large if... National Democrats who are in power are, are so staunchly against it. I think mm-hmm. that definitely there are significant portions of the Democratic leadership that are completely out of step with what people on the ground are demanding and frankly what's needed to meet this moment and to 
honor the lives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and so many more people who have been killed or harmed by police. And again, this is not the time for solutions of the past, which have failed us. This is the time for solutions of the future, where we are going to build a world premised on genuine safety and accountability and sustainability and thriving for our communities, and particularly for Black and Brown communities. And so people could look, for instance, I agree with Alex that they don't need to introduce the defund police bill if they're not happy with the hashtag, but they can look to uh, Representative Ayanna Presley's People's Justice Guarantee, which has provisions in it that specifically would redirect funding from law enforcement to supporting communities to come up with different responses to 911 calls that would support community members, help them, that would redirect money to the kinds of community-based transformative approaches to safety that Alex was just talking about, that would redirect money from pouring police officers, armed police officers into schools who commit not only physical violence, but sexual violence in schools, and instead move that money to flooding those schools with counselors and resources that will assist young people in surviving and thriving and learning restorative justice practices that they can then take out into their communities to help mediate, prevent, and transform harm. Alex, Andrea, thank you so much for the really compelling conversation. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Alex Vitali is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the author of The End of Policing. And Andrea Ritchie is a researcher at the Interrupting Criminalization Initiative and author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. Minneapolis has been in the national spotlight since George Floyd was killed by police on video. Although the events there sparked protests across the nation, the city is also a catalyst for change. We spoke with one progressive city leader who has been working on police reform since he took office in 2018. Cities are the laboratories of democracy and we're also the employers of police departments. And so we are gonna be the ones who need to lead in this conversation. And I think it's important for everybody to remember that this conversation is a life or death conversation. It is about everybody's sense of public safety and well-being in the community they live in. Steve Fletcher was among nine members of the Minneapolis City Council that recently announced their commitment to dismantling the city's police department. Councilmember Fletcher talked us through how the council got there. I don't want to speak for my colleagues because I think we each got to that decision in a different way. But for me... I came to that decision having spent now two and a half years on the council attempting reforms and watching those reforms meet resistance, watching those reforms fail, uh, watching those reforms kind of wither on the vine and not have an impact. And learning a lot about the deep structural problems that are really not within our power to overcome to try to fix the existing structure. And so for me, that's part of what informed my work. Another thing that informed my work was the persistent calls from community to consider bigger structural changes that have been a part of the Minneapolis landscape, uh, really coming out of the organizing around Jamar Clark's death in 2016. And so mm -hmm. the there's been a lot of groundwork laid for an analysis and a vision for what a future of public safety might look like by a lot of uh, really smart and dedicated activists and advocates. And I think that that was a part of the process. But then the biggest part of the process for me was hearing my own constituents really identify to me the ways that their analysis was changing in light of events on the ground. And that's 
both a reflection of one of the things I really love about my community is that, uh, and I'm not at all surprised by this, is that when they saw that awful video of Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd, they had a very strong reaction that said, this cannot happen in our name. It is beyond what we can take to see something like this happen in a uniform with our city's logo on it. But even more than that, when we saw the escalations, when we saw the opportunity that our police department had to distance themselves from that video, to be a de-escalating force, to try to make peace, to try to assert a different set of values, that opportunity was met instead by really closing the ranks and defending their precincts fairly aggressively in a way that escalated protests into something that felt more like a battle with tear gas and rubber bullets. And we spent a week not feeling protected, first of all, because really we saw the the precinct building itself being the only thing being protected uh, in our community. But also, we got this awful sense that this wasn't just a few officers, hmm. that there was a willingness to be defensive of and and complicit in that kind of violence by not everybody. I think there are actually some genuinely good people who intended to embark on a career of civil service who will get lost in all of this but it didn't it it didn't feel to any of us like it's just a few bad apples anymore right and i think that's the story that many of us try to tell ourselves so so what's what's next then uh where do you go from here with this proposal so this is where we really go back to community there's an uneasiness anytime you roll out a vision where people say oh my god you don't have a plan but if we had come to people with a plan it would have been really doing to people rather than with people. And what really is going to work for any kind of a community safety strategy is going to be deep engagement so that our whole community is bought into a vision of what makes them feel safe, what makes them feel supported, and what makes them feel like their values are being represented in our city's work. And that is not going to be a short process. So we're going to be working in parallel to make sure that in the meantime, 911 calls are being answered, to make sure that we have uh, a response to people's immediate safety needs as we begin the process of redesigning what public safety looks like and creating an entirely separate public safety infrastructure for our city. Is, is what you're proposing uh, what some more radical activists may call police abolition? You know, I think we will probably end up in a tough conversation with some folks who are pure abolitionists, mm-hmm. because I think that if we were, t- as we have these community conversations about our city, I think the question that's going to come up for people is there are a lot of guns in our community. What do we do about, you know, you can look to models in other countries where police forces generally don't have guns or use, uh, you know, use weapons in a serious way, but they also don't have a lot of weapons out in their community. And so we do have to have some ability to respond to the imminent threat of violence. I think that's one of the things that we're going to hear makes people feel safe. I do think that we don't need to lead with that. I think that a majority of our interactions and certainly all of our maybe self-directed interactions, city-initiated interactions, could be people who aren't leading with guns and a badge. Your your mayor, Jacob Fry, said recently that he does not support abolishing the Minneapolis Police Department. And at a protest, he said he didn't even want to defund the police. He, he got booed off the street. What kind of conversations are you having with the mayor about the, the, this framework moving forward? 
you know, I think we're in a place where there's a lot that we agree on, uh, but there's also a lot we disagree on. I think that he fundamentally, you know, seems to not want to go the route that we declared our intention to go and, and that there's going to be a debate and disagreement. And I think that's okay. I think it's important for us to have this discussion out in the open and recognize that, you know, people have different approaches to it. In, in a piece you published in Time, uh, you talked about how your attempts at police reform in, in the first three years you were in office were met with institutional resistance. Who's resisting these changes institutionally? You know, that's one of the tough things about some of the ways that the resistance comes forward is that it's not always clear. It could be a group of individual officers. It could be coordinated through the Federation or some other group. But what you do find uh, is that you suddenly get a lot of calls from constituents who are being seemingly intentionally underserved uh, huh. and being told that they should uh, attribute that lack of service to the council and call and put pressure on me. Uh, and so that was something that happened. You know, it, it, it was almost a reliable occurrence when I would do something on the council that wasn't popular in the police department. And this is going much further than reforms, reform proposals from the past. So are you worried about retribution from the police against your, your, your constituents with this new proposal that you, you have out there? Sure. And I think that the, the fact that the threat of that has been part of what's shaping public safety policy is one of the things that we have to finally stand up to. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think, think about how toxic that is that you're even asking that question that we're having a conversation about, are, are you worried about engaging in a democratic process of public engagement around a vision for public safety because city employees might retaliate against your constituents? That sounds like something that we have to do something about. Well, Council Member, we'll, we will be watching Minneapolis to see what happens. Uh, Council Member Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us on The Takeaway. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Steve Fletcher is a member of City Council in Minneapolis. All right, everyone, it's been great talking with you here on Politics with Amy Walter. Amy is back next week, and Tanzina Vega is in on Monday as usual. Our senior politics producer is Amber Hall. The show this week was produced by Patricia Jacob, as well as Katarina Barton. Holly Arungu is our digital editor, and David Gable is our executive assistant. Jake Howitt is editor. Debbie Daughtry was at the board this week in the studio at WNYC, along with Vince Fairchild, who directed the show. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Then, of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE, or send us a tweet. I'm at MattKatz00, K-A-T-Z, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Mm -hmm.